Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And welcome to episode 14 of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How you doing this week, Richard? Good. That's good to hear. I've been currently struggling in my computer science classes learning C, but oh, yeah. other than that, I'm doing pretty fine. <laughs> Uh, well, we had a ton of Linux news this week, and there's a lot for us to talk about, so I think we should definitely jump right in here, so this doesn't take way too uh, too long, but our first yeah. story is uh, Oracle this week, closing down the last of its Sun product lines. So, Richard, do you remember when, when Oracle bought Sun some years back? Yes, I did hear about it, but I wasn't actually active enough in the community at the time to really know what happened at that point, but... yeah. Um, so over the years here on Linux, we've we've realized or we've seen the repercussions of Oracle buying Sun in a lot of different places. But this article was kind of cool because it rounded it all up. Um, but yeah, for the immediate what's happening, basically Oracle is shutting down Spark and Solaris. And Spark would be its computer architecture. Solaris would be its operating system. It's Unix-based. Um, it's an actual Unix operating system. Um, unlike Linux, which is, or GNU, which is a Unix-like operating system, Solaris is actually Unix, or I should say it was. Um, so this past week, 2,500 Oracle employees that were formerly Sun employees have been laid off. So yeah, they just fired 2,500 people. That is not great. Um, yeah, that's... Sucks for all those pretty people. Pretty bad sign for them, yeah. Yeah, um, so the core Solaris engineering organization lost 90% of 90% of the Solaris department basically has been fired including quote essentially all management <laughs> so, so it's basically the project's like gutted at that point right so like they, they're still probably providing support to whoever they have current support contracts with but they're not going to be selling any new support contracts they're definitely not going to be updating Solaris anymore uh, beyond what they're contractually obligated to do with their partners so yeah, Solaris, as ZDNet puts it, Solaris is done. Um, and part of the reason why that has happened is because of the rise of commodity Linux x86-based servers. You know, why pay for a fancy Spark processor and pay for a Solaris license when you can just get a regular old Intel or AMD processor and put Linux on it um, is kind of why, why Solaris died down with the rise of Linux in the past 10 years. Um, Let's so see. Solaris wasn't compatible with x86? It might have been, you know... It was only on Spark? Or? I'm not, I I don't know if it was a compatibility thing, but Oracle definitely pushed it with Spark because Spark was its in-house thing. It was probably optimized for... Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you, actually, Solaris was definitely compatible with x86 because I've got it in a virtual machine right here. Um, oh, yeah. so, and by the way, just for fun for the stream, we're going to pause right here before we go into the list of everything that Oracle did wrong. Let's go ahead and I've got or uh, Solaris 11 in a virtual machine. Going to start it up on stream here. Now, the reason I've got this in a virtual machine is because we actually had someone in our comments. I think they were trolling on YouTube, but I, they, they kept saying that, um, that Ubuntu should rebase on first. They kept saying BSD. Do you remember this guy? Yeah, and then eventually he made a comment that said they should rebase on Solaris, and so I installed Solaris and found out that it's nothing like Ubuntu. It's it's super outdated desktop wise. It was made for the server, um, and you're gonna see here once this starts up that that is totally true. So you can see it says Oracle Solaris when it's starting up. Um, like I said, actual Unix operating system. So like the command line, some of the the utilities that you use are the same, but anything that's the same is only because GNU. Um, uses the same commands. It's not actually the same programs running, and it's not going to be all of the GNU licensed tools. 
going to be using. Yeah, because it's, I mean, Solaris is fully Unix compliant, like it follows the whole spec, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I Maybe said... It's essentially a complete Unix operating system. Yeah, it is. Um, so, I'm just still talking here, trying to fill up the time while this is booting, and we've got the X11 waiting cursor here. Let's see? Um, Alright, so here's the login screen. My username, I think, was Jacob. Password, I think, was password. Okay, here we go. So it's logging us in to GNOME. The which stream is... is about 10 seconds behind. Okay. I was just figuring that out by because I have it paused or I have it muted, right. but I'm watching to try and well, see what you're I doing. I can't delay my talking by 10 seconds because the recording would be 10 seconds delayed then. We yeah. just logged into Solaris though, Richard, and this is a GNOME 2 desktop environment. So GNOME 2. Wow. Now, GNOME 3 came out oh, God. seven yeah. years ago. Seven years ago. So this is seven years outdated desktop environment. This looks like when I started using um, Ubuntu first in like 2011 yes. once when I like dual booted it. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is GNOME been version 2.30.2 Distributors Oracle Corporation. The build date. And this, I, I downloaded this like a couple weeks back. Uh, the build date is uh, June 22nd, 2015 was when this version of GNOME was built. That's the time they updated GNOME last. Uh, they're super outdated version. So we can go in and see like the different, uh, here's our, our terminal. So you can see like I can type ls and it lists all my, my stuff. But let's say if I try and use nano, yeah, they've got GNU nano installed. Um, there was something that, oh yeah, it's like, let's say I try to cat proc CPU info. Um, now if I go, if I open up a terminal on my local Linux system, and the fan on my laptop just got a lot louder from running this virtual machine. But if I cat slash proc slash CPU info, it gives me a bunch of information about my processor. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Yeah. So then if we try and do that on Solaris, cannot open proc CPU info, no such file the directory. And if we actually do an ls in our slash proc directory, you can see it's just a bunch of random numbers. It doesn't have like mem info, CPU info. It's just a bunch of random numbers because that's something that Linux does special is that it actually organizes the proc folder in ways that are very human readable. Whereas since this isn't Linux, this is a Unix thing. It's just, you know, everything's still a file, but the files are just named random crap that you can't find anything in because it's all just <laughs> yeah. numbers. So that was- That's uh, interesting. I never knew that was a Linux only thing. Yeah. That was something that they specifically added to the, their version. Yeah, so um, so you can see they've got their sort of Solaris theme on top of GNOME, uh, and you've got some of the same other applications on here. Um, but yeah, basically, it's just uh, it was never meant for for desktop usage. It was meant for server usage, and Linux has been dominating the servers. So there's not a whole lot of reason for Solaris to really exist anymore. I'm going to go ahead and shut this down. Um, but yeah, so the former Sun open source officer Simon Fit, uh, yeah Simon Phipps. Um, like I said, former Sun open source officer, so I can imagine he probably didn't stick around at Oracle too long based on how Oracle does open source. He made this blog post uh, where he made a list of basically all the ways Oracle screwed up since buying Sun. So Oracle bought Sun. Um, first of all, they described Java as the crown jewels during the transaction, but the real reason some speculate for buying Java was trying to sue Google for $8 billion for using Java in Android, which we've talked about how um, 
Google kind of actually did violate, or uh, have we talked about this, or has the Linux Action Show talked about this, and I'm just remembering what they said, Richard. Um, I we haven't talked about this while I'm here. All while right. I've been here. I know that. me and Mark yeah. might have. Touched I had on heard it, of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Oracle tried to sue Google several times, um, and basically they failed every single time they tried to to sue Google um, for eight billion dollars for for using Java without paying the license fees necessary. Now, if you look at the Google um, like internal mailings that they have had, it's basically confirmed that Google knew they were breaking the license and by shipping Java with Android and not paying Oracle for it, or Sun at the time. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, the courts aren't super technology you know, aware, so they have sided with Google, and you know the public usually sides with Google over um, a huge corporations such as Oracle. So yeah, um, that failed. They did not make any money off of the Google lawsuits. They only spent money. Um, let's see here. The Oracle CEO said that Java's role in middleware was the key to success. Um, so that would be Java Embedded, but Java Embedded Edition is now headed to a foundation. So Oracle's not going to own that anymore or make money on it. Um, Oracle criticized Sun for failing to monetize Java and proposed a freemium model. However, Oracle's freemium model for Java has not resulted in any revenue. Oracle embraced <laughs> NetBeans, and it, that NetBeans is now donated to Apache, so Oracle doesn't own NetBeans anymore, which was part of what they acquired from Sun. Um, bureaucracy over MySQL. Security fixes led to a decent portion of the user community, including Nerd on the Street, uh, and you know lots more important people than us, yeah. going over to MariaDB. So, you know, MariaDB did not exist. What was that? I used that as well in mine. Yeah. Like in my um, containers yeah. for the database. Yeah, MariaDB did not exist um, when Oracle bought Sun, but it does now because of Oracle putting too much bureaucracy into MySQL. So uh, the Oracle CEO said he would rebuild Sun's hardware business, but the hardware business's boss quit a month ago, and then the team behind it was part of the layoff this week as well. Um, despite... Understanding within the company that Solaris had to be open to win the market over Linux, Oracle hyped it up and then closed it down, and the result was Solaris becoming obsolete and shutting down now. Uh, mishandling Hudson meant that the continuous integration business followed the Jenkins fork. Now, Richard, I didn't even know that Jenkins was like something that forked off. First of all, I didn't realize it was a fork, but you know what Jenkins is. Don't you? I would imagine yeah, you do. the build. Yeah. Yeah, the, the build, build service integration. thing. And I don't even know a lot about it. I've just seen it online uh, when I'm looking. When you download stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. When I'm looking for stuff to download, I've seen Jenkins servers. But yeah, the Jenkins is actually a fork of a product called Hudson that Oracle bought from Sun. And so, uh, yeah, MariaDB and Jenkins are two things that we have now because Oracle screwed up the originals. Oracle abandoned Sun's identity management projects, and another company is now profiting off of those instead. Oracle decided to cancel Sun Cloud and dismantled the Ready for Cloud features of Solaris, and then the market went cloud, and Solaris couldn't live up to that because they took all the features out. Oracle renamed StarOffice and announced a cloud version of StarOffice, but that never became really a big thing. And of course, Sensing the impending end of life of OpenOffice, the community jumped ship to LibreOffice. So once again, you know, you, yeah. when, 
when me and Richard started using Linux, every Linux distribution came with OpenOffice, and yep, just I remember that Oracle bought Sun, and now every distribution comes with LibreOffice. So, and then uh, the only the the author mentions only VirtualBox seems unscathed. VirtualBox is the only product that Oracle seems to have not screwed up at this point. So, oh yeah, I, and I'm glad because I forgot they were owned by him. Yeah, I just now opened up VirtualBox and started a virtual machine. I use VirtualBox for all of my virtual machine tasks because the only real alternative that I've seen for desktop usage is uh, VMware, and VMware is proprietary, and Open uh, VirtualBox is open source. So I use VirtualBox whenever I can. Isn't um, there one called QEMU? Yeah, Q QMU is for, I've used QMU, and it's got a little bit worse graphics performance. It's more for servers. Now, you can get really good graphics performance if you put a dedicated video card just to it, but uh, for virtualized graphics, its performance isn't as good. And that's why I say that VirtualBox, uh, okay. and, uh, VirtualBox and VMware are the only two options for desktop usage now server usage yeah. linux has some of the best virtualization you know sets out there it's got qmu it's got you know zen as an option there's there's stuff out there i don't know what all's behind it and that stuff's a lot more complicated to set up as well now like gnome boxes builds on qmu and i've used gnome boxes before but yeah there are other options they're not as easy to set up for me personally and they're not mm. what i normally go to as a go-to but yes there are other options available uh, if you're looking to do really complicated stuff but yeah, uh, basically, this is once again a former Oracle, uh, former Sun employee speaking. Oracle said it was going to reinvigorate the Sun brand, but instead has killed it more dead than any Sun executive managed. Um, and then back to the ZDNet article, Oracle buying Sun was a waste of money for Oracle and a waste of once valuable Sun technologies. So that is where that's at. Those were pretty harsh yeah. articles, but really, you know... Me and Richard, see the opinion shining through in right. that article, but me and, me and Richard, I mean, the facts do mostly speak for themselves. <laughs> we 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 both. You said what I was thinking when I sent this in the rocket chat. How like I knew that each one of these things that happened, but I didn't realize just how bad it all was added up until somebody put it all in a list in this article. Yeah. So I when I you see it, it compiled like that in a bulleted list, you really realize how much they messed up with it. Yeah. So. Uh, that was an interesting article. I wanted to talk about that, and we'll hopefully, hopefully VirtualBox stays alive. But yeah, Solaris is no more. Um, all right, next story is another big enterprise one. SUSE Linux Enterprise 12 Service Pack 3 has been released. Uh, have you ever used, well, you probably haven't used, I've never used SUSE Linux Enterprise. Have you ever used it? No. Um, it's commonly abbreviated SLES, similar to how Red Hat is, is uh, abbreviated. But yeah, the new SUSE Linux, uh, Linux Enterprise Server 12 Service Pack 3, it supports more hardware platforms and has better performance, clustering ability, and security. Than before, the new patch supports the latest chips from ARM, Intel, AMD, IBM, Z Systems, and Power. It supports non-volatile memory, Express over Fabrics. Um, so just going a little bit more in-depth into everything, hardware and virtualization, uh, which is obviously a big thing. You know, if you are doing enterprise stuff like QMU, you can now do that with less power consumption and using more economical hardware by using it on ARM systems, which is a new thing that you can do with this new version. Um, such as chips produced by Qualcomm. Uh, you can, let's see, support for Intel's newest and most powerful Xeon processors. That's a little bit more. If you're just running a standard server, it's probably going to have Xeon processors in it. 
Uh, we've got support for the latest AMD Epic and Ryzen processors as well. So Ryzen, especially if you're building actual desktop workstations to run Linux on, you can put Ryzen in them and then run SUS Linux Enterprise Server on them. Uh, and then both Power and Z, those are two different um, two different processor architectures, which I actually got a little confused reading this. Um, or not really confused, but I it occurred to me that IBM does both the Power and Z processor architectures. Now I actually looked it up, and Power is more of a, an open spec that IBM just contributes to, whereas Z is IBM's sole property. Um, but yeah, both Power and Z systems, those are both processor options uh, that come from IBM for more enterprise level users running data centers and whatnot. Uh, let's see, so like I said, uh, the new Service Pack 3 includes support for fast local non-volatile memory express or more commonly referred to as NVMe SSDs. Uh, my laptop has an NVMe SSD. And, Mine as well, yeah. Yeah, um, so there's also enhanced non-volatile dual inline memory module, so NVDIMM block device support. Never heard of that one before, but it sounds like another fast flash storage architecture. There is optimization for SAP applications, um, optimized for performance with those, and SAP, those are like sales tracking and you know inventory management, supply chain management, that kind of thing. Um, expand security capabilities with updated support for trusted platform module, and they expanded key server support for SAP systems with the key management interoperability protocol, KMIP standard. Um, this release also fully supports MariaDB. So in the past, you kind of had to use MySQL if you're running SUSE Linux, uh, Linux Enterprise. Of course, if you're running SUSE Linux Enterprise, I would imagine you're okay with running MySQL and having a support contract with Oracle, uh, probably. Yeah. But, but yeah, you can run MariaDB on it now if you want to. And then you're now also going to be able to use SLES as a desktop with the new SUSE Linux Enterprise Workstation extension. So um, just like Red Hat has those, what did that? What did Red Hat call them? That were like pre-configured things you could install, and it just like sets it up as a web server or sets it up as a desktop. Do you remember when we talked about those a couple weeks back? No, I can't remember what they're called, darn. But we we talked but about a thing saying, where yeah. Red Hat was um, making it easy to just set up a computer or a, a server as one specific thing by installing basically installing a task to it. Uh, that sounds sort of like what the extension thing is for SUS Linux Enterprise. So yeah, there's a new extension for workstations if you do want to use this on desktops. And then that does require though a SUS Linux Enterprise desktop subscription, uh, which is probably going to be pretty expensive. And yeah, now it's interesting they say that the SUS Linux Enterprise desktop now uses GNOME 3.20 for its desktop interface. That's really interesting because SUSE has always been a KDE company. They have always preferred, you know, Red Hat's always pushed GNOME, but SUSE has always pushed KDE. And even though OpenSUSE, you can get it with either uh, KDE or GNOME pre-installed, uh, they've always been more on the KDE side. They've been known for their KDE implementation, their Plasma implementation. So yeah, very interesting that their server or their um, Enterprise distro is now going to be using GNOME by default, not KDE anymore. Although they do offer a 
classic mode for people who still want to use KDE. Um, so yeah, aside yeah, it's from definitely interesting sign for it. Yeah, because um, they could be dropping support for KDE down the road. Although it doesn't look like they mentioned yeah, anything about that. But. I doubt they're going that far, but it is an interesting thing they're doing. But yeah, um, aside from that, SUS Linux Enterprise Server 12 has a 13-year release uh, life cycle. Um, it was released in October 2014. It will continue to be released for um, a lot more years because they they had 10 years of general support and three of extended support from the release in 2014. And the current Service Pack 3 will be maintained and supported until six months after the release of Service Pack 4. So just keep your stuff up to date, which I assume you will be able to do if you're running SUS Linux Enterprise Server. Any other thoughts about that? No, you pretty much addressed everything, I think. All right. And then... Oh, other than what's interesting, you mentioned MariaDB um, database and Docker containers, because that's kind of what I'm doing with Minecraft Media. Right, yeah. Because that's like the exact setup I had, so I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, but I, I forgot to highlight Docker, but already, so. yeah, you do get Docker support as well. Good spotting that. And I also wanted to mention another thing SUSE is doing for their enterprise customers. There's a new thing called the SUSE Package Hub, and it's a place, it's basically a repository where SUSE Linux enterprise users can go to find a collection of popular open source packages uh, pre-built for SUSE Linux enterprise server. Now, it's interesting because the packages from the SUSE Package Hub are not officially supported by SUSE, but they are officially approved for use, and you can use the packages without breaking your SUSE Linux Enterprise support contract. So wow, I kind of yeah. send some mixed signals to me if they're saying, we're not supporting this software, but you can install it. Like, how do they test it to make sure they say um, that you can install it without worrying about breaking your, well, breaking your support contract, but I guess there's no guarantees it won't break your system if they're not supporting it but then why would but then, but then wouldn't they be obligated to still give you support right they'll support it by, your by system with it removing it or fixing it yeah i guess and then they've also got a blurb asking people to submit their packages to the SUS package hub if you want to get access to the plethora plethora of people using <laughs> SUS linux enterprise um so that's interesting it just seems like they're pushing, you know, like community repositories are a thing. There are a lot, you know, Ubuntu's got PPAs, Arch has a community repository as well as the AUR, um, and OpenSUSE has the OpenSUSE build service. But yeah, it's trying to make a community repository for enterprise users only. I'm wondering how much of the community would push to that, or how much yeah. of anyone would push to that at all, but... If yeah, they're that, already trying to use enterprise, they probably want stuff that's officially supported and they don't have to like, right. go and to if another they're going to, to for, yeah. And if something's not already in this repository and you're an enterprise and you're going to spend money getting it to work on SUSE, you're not going to put it up for free on this thing after you just spent money. You're just going to keep it for yourself, probably. Thinking as an yeah. enterprise who would use SUSE. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's they're also doing that. Keep an eye on that. Uh, next up, the FlatHub website now lets you install applications rather than just providing minimalistic information about Flatpak. So, Richard, uh, we've talked about Flatpak and Snaps before. They are um, universal installers for Linux. And have you ever used Flatpak? No, not recent, not currently, actually. All right. So, Flatpak has a website called FlatHub, and it is sort of a, they call it a quasi-official, OMG Ubuntu calls it a quasi-official app store for apps packaged and distributed using Flatpak. So basically anyone can, can package their application up as a Flatpak, but not everyone has their Flatpaks listed on FlatHub. So keep that in mind. Um, 
when you're browsing Flathub. But basically, there's this website called Flathub. Until now, it's just sort of given you basic instructions on installing Flatpak packages. But now the Flathub website actually has a list of the programs in the Flathub repository. And it's also got one-click installing for all of the apps listed in there. So that's definitely going to be a huge plus for Flatpak. Uh, because right now, Ubuntu had something similar with the UApp Explorer website. Uh, have you ever installed anything on that? No, but I did see, like, you linked me to a one thing from it that I forgot to install because I right. changed OSs during that week, but yeah. <laughs> I wonder um, if I remembered at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, this is definitely a good thing for Flatpak. Um, I'm still a little unclear on the whole repository thing with both Flatpaks and Snaps because I thought we were trying to get rid of repositories with these universal installers, you know? Like, their whole argument yeah. was that repositories weren't good enough, and now it's like, well, we still have repositories, it's just you're trying to get everyone to use one repository that you're maintaining and you get approval over whether things are in here or not. So obviously there's going to be people making their own repositories that you're not approving. Um, yeah, it just seems like then they're like, we don't like repositories we don't have control over. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, I, which we've already discussed. That's exactly what's, what uh, snaps are after is control with, for developers. They want control. Uh, yeah. Flatpak wants the control over this stuff as well. Um, but yeah, basically you can go to Flathub, get that stuff. Um, so for users on Fedora, Arch, Magia, and OpenSUSE, yeah, one-click installation uh it works already now if you're on ubuntu ubuntu hates flatpak of course um and then omg ubuntu says but not really i would argue yes really they do really hate flatpak uh because guess what richard ubuntu doesn't ship with flatpak installed it does not include the flatpak plugin that allows one click install and the ubuntu software center only promotes snap apps it does not even support regular apps let alone flatpaks only promotes snap apps <laughs> and like the recommended applications on ubuntu um, and then, wow. by the way, as a side note, this is OMG Ubuntu. This is a publication <laughs> dedicated to Ubuntu, and they don't even know if they're supposed to call it Snappy or Snaps. They say, I never know which it is. <laughs> this is a writer who he spends every day, his job is to write articles about Ubuntu, and he doesn't even know if it's called Snappy or Snaps. And if one of the Ubuntu devs read this article, they would probably call this author an idiot because that's what they've done every time I've seen other people call it the wrong thing online before. Is they the say, oh, your entire argument's invalid. You use, you use the wrong name. Clearly, though, if the people who are paid to just write about you don't even know which one to call it, then... <laughs> you have not done a good job of making it clear what your actual wrong name is. with your branding, yes. Um, yeah. So you are going to, if you want to use Flatpak in Ubuntu, you can't even just install it from the repos because Ubuntu does not keep Flatpak up to date in its repos. So you have to add the Flatpak PPA, which once again, that's defeating the whole purpose of we're getting rid of PPAs with these universal installers because now I need a PPA to install the universal installer. Um, and yeah. then even once you do that, the one-click install is broken on Ubuntu. So. Wow. You still have to use the command line, even if you do install Flatpak. So, uh, but if you're not on Ubuntu, then Flatpak is a great option. And you can go to Flathub. Uh, let's see here. If you go to flatpak.org, it's even got a link to, oh, not really. See, if you go to flatpak.org, they've got a list of apps. And like Skype is one of these apps that you can get um, one-click install from flatpak.org. Now, if we go to flathub.org, then Skype is not in the list of their applications. 
Wow. So it's like... I mean, aren't those both officially run by Flatpak too? Yeah, Flathub is run by the same people who run Flatpak, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> and yet they don't even have they, the same applications in both. No, they don't. Um, so that's still very disorganized and interesting. So keep an eye on that if you're interested in one-click installers or just you know switch to Arch or a distribution that's got good repositories. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, our next story, Richard, is one you're talking about. It is OpenShot 2.4 has been released with a focus on stability. What's going on here? All right. So basically, the previous couple releases had a focus on um, new features, and they're saying this one is a focus on stability. They're saying, basically, yeah. They, yeah, they wanted to include. They also included a few new features, though. They're not like huge features. Yeah. Basically, um, improve the undo and the redo history. And they added a new freeze and zoom menu, mm -hmm. but um, basically he urged um, Thomas, the person who I guess is behind this as the main developer originally, and encourages people who've had issues in the past with the previous like two to .x builds to yeah. give this new version a try. I did try to give this new version a try, but unfortunately, it's not actually updated <laughs> to yeah. install in Ubuntu yet, even on their official PPA, which kind of is annoying. Yeah. So. It's not updated on Arch's repos either. So their official yeah. their official PPA does not have it on Ubuntu yet. Yeah, even though this article says it does, which is apparently it wasn't. Because right. I'm running 17.04 and it wasn't there. But um, other than that, the article does address the stuff, but without actually getting to test it myself, I don't want to be like, I'm sure on whether they improve the stability or not. I mean, yeah. even the article encourages basically I like, Yeah, I was just going to say that. Themselves. I like how the article says, quote, why, dear readers, that's for you to find out. Go put the latest release to the test and then gives instructions that don't work on installing the new version. Yeah. Great job, OMG Ubuntu. Um, like, isn't that actually your responsibility as, as the, the journalist? The now, we are also semi-quasi-journalists here, Richard, and we can test this out and let our viewers know how it's working because not only is it available as a PPA, it is also available as an app image. That's the third universal format and the one that me and Richard both prefer, I think. Um, so I yeah. downloaded the, the app image right before the show and since I'm sharing my screen, why don't I go ahead? All right, so here on stream, I've got a folder called OpenShot and I'll just go ahead and here, open up a terminal. All we have to do, let's go, I forgot how to make an app image executable, so I'll go to appimage.org, and on the front page, here are the instructions. So, chmod a plus x. It's got to allow it to have execute permissions. All right, chmod x, openshot.appimage, and then dot slash openshotappimage. All right, so... AppImage is asking us if we want to install a desktop file. We'll go ahead and click no. Um, but we are opening up the app image. And on my other screen here, I just had OpenShot launch. So that's how easy it is to use an app image. None of that, uh, you know, you have to install Flatpak or you have to, from the PPA, you have to go install Ubuntu for Snappy. No, uh, app image, you can just run it on any distribution. And if we go to about OpenShot, ah, this is version 2.4.0. So if I open up OpenShot from my system menu, then it's still going to say here we've got OpenShot about it still says 2.3.4 but the app image that we just launched yeah. is definitely 2.4.0 um yeah now i'm not sure how should i actually test I, I don't know how much testing we can do on air though Let's see was there anything specific you noticed that was very buggy before or it just didn't start um, for you? well when i like tried to import 
I don't even know what happened. When I tried to import a file and I clicked a folder and I, then it like lagged out. So I'm not sure if I accidentally clicked something that wasn't a valid file type. Okay. Or what? Yeah. Because it just all of a sudden completely froze. And then I couldn't even like minimize or close it anymore. There was nothing displaying. Yeah. Like other apps would display in front of it or behind it. So the whole thing just broke at that point. So I guess that would be the quickest way to test it. Just importing some footage. Yeah. Let's, um... Or try importing something that isn't a video. Oh, that isn't or, a video. Well, yeah. I mean, I've got... Like, is it a video or image? Because it's see if it makes sure that doesn't crash. Okay, so, like, for video, I did want to do just a video to see if it worked. And it did import... Um, okay, that's... Lag's not... Well, yeah. It's still kind of screwy where when clicking works and when it doesn't. But um, that works. And then, so let's try importing a text file how about that yeah so here's an odt file so this is a libreoffice document tried importing it it says that is not a valid video audio or image file all right that's better than all i right. got because now if i if so i open up import some clips that's farther than i got in 2.3.4 i wonder if i open up 2.3.4 and try and do that same thing will it crash it aha it did all right, that's cool. Oh, no, it didn't. It did the same thing. It just gave me... I don't know what your problem was, because I just got a dialog box that said it wasn't a supported file, even in the old version. All right, well, we don't know what the difference actually is, guys, but we did get the new version of OpenShot running. So you have that much. Um, if you're into really slow but easy-to-use video editors, go and use OpenShot. If you're looking for something more professional, Caden Live is still my professional recommendation but yeah um anything else did you want to say anything else about OpenShot 2.4 richard um not really anything else i know that OpenShot does support transparent flv files so okay Caden yeah. Live didn't when i tried it and we so were just talking like about benefit for it for right me. we were just talking about that before the show and i told richard that the best thing to do would be to convert that transparent uh flv to, uh, to sequence, yeah. uh, png image sequence A png sequence yeah. any any video editor would support that but yeah um, I did want to mention, the article mentions, in 2013, the developer of OpenShot ran a successful crowdfunding campaign for OpenShot, uh, raising $45,000. Now, that wasn't to fund OpenShot 1.0. That was to fund OpenShot 2.0. And then the developer disappeared for several years before finally coming back with the new version. Interesting. Opening a text file and mine still crashes it in 2.2.4. Oh, really? huh. So it might be no. a difference between Ubuntu being the back end for me Yeah. And you using arch i don't know same version i don't know what why that would happen but yep that is OpenShot 2.4 that is out if you're using that and the next thing we're talking about is over on the kde side uh so last week it was just last week we were talking about gnome redoing its system settings right yeah so kde not far behind at all they are also redoing their system settings uh so system settings is a good expression of the power of kde plasma um, and this this is the blog of a designer for KDE. So they are a KDE contributor, but they're not a developer. They do design work, and the developers implement what they design. Um, so the designer says, I have decided to keep working with system settings. They've done a little bit of work on it in the past. They've decided to keep working on it to help the modules arrive at a good place in the near future. Uh, this person says that they suggested they become the leader, uh, the lead designer for this project. Um, now, the designer does ask for ideas and thoughts on the new design, but they say they don't want ideas and thoughts that would drastically change the direction they're taking. 
They only want ideas and thoughts that match <laughs> what they currently are doing, which I think is kind of a bad thing for a designer to say because that kind of means they're not yeah. open to feedback. That means I'm open to feedback as long as you like what I'm doing. You know, uh, that's that's or only as long as it's like a minor nitpick. And right. Not a, OK, yeah, this that's is like bad. you should start from scratch. That's uh, that's like when somebody says, I only want constructive criticism. I don't want regular criticism, only constructive, because that's completely subjective. What is constructive? And, yeah. You know, um, they say this is somewhat rough, but here is something I can show you. So this is a mock up of the new KDE system settings. Now, um, it's kind of blurry because this is a low resolution image, but Richard, now let's see, I think I've got a higher resolution. Somebody linked a higher resolution image down in the comments. Here we go. So here's a resolution, higher resolution screenshot. Have you looked at these screenshots? I don't like oh, I'm them. I'm looking at them now. Yeah. I really don't like them. And this is a KDE user speaking. This is a Plasma user speaking. These screenshots, this, this system settings is way oversimplified. <clears throat> so basically what it looks yeah. like here. I mean, let me pull up the current one. We've so got, well, yeah, if you look at the current one, the current one's not great. It gets the job done, though. Um, it houses all, yeah. of the, all, all of the options. And the current one has a search box, so I can search, like, if I want to change my desktop background. Background. You're right. That doesn't actually have a search box. It's uh, yeah, the new one doesn't. Screenshots. Now, I don't like that idea. my problem with this, it's got, like, look and feel, and it's just got three pictures. Desktop theme, it's got pictures. Cursor theme, it has pictures. There's no text anywhere on this other than like the categories. Um, like every single selectable option is a picture, it looks like. And that I, I don't, you know, I'm not a preschooler. I need to be able to read what I'm looking at, not just look at these tiny little screenshots of an entire screen for every single possible option on my system, which there are hundreds of options on I a KDE even, system. Like, share that with someone like <clears throat> if if someone's asking what you're using under the setting how would you verbalize that yeah that without a name? I, i'm using the i'm using the one with the, like the black background and then it's got the green box in the middle yeah um now they I do mean, like the best way would be maybe like second row second yeah, column second. or something well but... <laughs> if you've got different amounts of like themes installed then it might not be the same yeah. numbers though um, so on the very left-hand side, we've got five different overall categories, I guess. And then we've got a middle sidebar that's got different places you can click on. But then all of those places, it looks like, are already visible in the right-hand column, like look and feel, desktop theme, cursor theme, splash screen. You can click the button on the left side, but if clicking the button on the left side just scrolls you to that it's spot like in the right to side. A point on a web page. Yeah, like it's how they do with the modern. It's not. Page it's not now. bringing you to an actual different page. It's just scrolling you down one long page, which seems less organized to me, not more organized. Um, yeah. But yeah, they say that work on labels um, is something that they do need to work on, which I'm glad they have acknowledged they need to work on labels. They also want to develop a tone and angle for descriptions. Um, you know, I would say having descriptions of any kind would still be better than the current mock-up with no descriptions whatsoever. But, you know, if you want to worry about the tone of your descriptions, you can make your style guide. Um, they say they want to work on removing tabs altogether in favor of a one-page interface. And that, it's just the worst idea ever, because how many settings does KDE have? It's got li like literally hundreds of settings. And they say, we don't want you to have to click more than three times before getting to the desired content, they call it. But here's the thing, would I rather click four times and get to what I'm looking for in 10 seconds? Or would I rather spend two minutes scrolling through 
hundreds yeah. of options because the KDE designer thought that they needed to remove all buttons and just have a one-page interface. Or the I, fact that they removed the search. You know, <laughs> clicking, clicking is not a problem. The problem is how much time you spend on it. So I hope they do some testing yeah. on how quickly users who aren't familiar with this new system, who aren't the ones designing it, can actually find what they're looking for. Um, also, I assume the screenshots they're posting are only from Breeze, because I don't see any ones of the Breeze Dark, which is the look and feel I yeah, use. Yeah, well, these screenshots... Otherwise, it looks very out of place. These screenshots like, that they posted... Yeah. Well, these aren't even... This isn't a running program. This was something this person did in GIMP. Um, oh, okay. Like, they, they well, photoshopped they this together. they didn't even think of how it would look in dark, I guess. I guess not. I mean, that's something that I, I imagine if they build it in QT, it's going to basically take care of itself um, in terms of the colors of the text and the background and everything. But, yeah. It's so, I guess, here. yeah, we're just going by layout, really, in looking at this, not the colors, necessarily. Right, yeah. but. Which... And it's like a left-to-right layout, too. It's just weird. Um, but yeah, they say they're working on getting people to the next KDE Sprint, which is at Ronda. And Ronda was a very big uh, event for Caden Live last year. As so, you know, basically, KDE has these, these developer sprints. They had Academy a little while ago we talked about. Ronda is the next one coming up. And lots of big things happen with KDE apps at these developer events. So yeah, looking forward to what comes out of Ronda for every application. Now... After some feedback in the comments, Richard, the author of this article actually posted an update at the bottom of their post, and they say, I am not a developer, I am a visual designer, the mock-up is missing a few things such as a title bar, search fields, labels, and oh. buttons. Yes, yes, the mock-up is missing buttons. Okay. Clearly buttons are a minor thing in a settings center. You know, who needs, who needs the apply button? It's just a settings, who needs a title bar? Um... Well, since I don't it know what this person search, was. Hopefully, that means they're not actually ditching the search, and that it just meant he didn't include it in this yeah. mockup. No, I, <laughs> I don't know what this person was thinking when they made this mockup with no title bar, no buttons, <laughs> no labels at all. Um, but they have at least acknowledged that that people want those things, so hopefully they will add those in later. So, you know, I'm using KDE, and it's gonna take a lot to get me off of KDE. So I'll be seeing where this goes in the future. I'll let you guys know when this is actually in development and usable. Uh, the next story though is another desktop thing, although it's more of a non-desktop specific thing. Uh, this is Pulse Audio 11.0 has been released. What's new, Richard? All right, so this is kind of something that hits directly home with me because it affected me. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not being released soon, but basically it's the latest stable release as they talk about it, and they're talking about a bunch of new features and capabilities being added as well as some bug fixes. Yep, so and Pulse Audio is the adding... sound server for Linux, so if you're listening to sound, you're probably using Pulse Audio or using a microphone, things like that. Yeah, so they're adding support for newer AirPlay hardware. I do have, like, an iPhone, but I haven't really, don't use many other Apple products, so I wouldn't really... Like that wouldn't affect me much to know exactly what that's included, yeah. And if it was what, what hardware it wasn't supporting prior to it, but I guess they're supporting the latest Apple TV models, and it'll be possible to stream music to devices and receivers over this just from air or just from your I guess settings inside of Pulse Audio, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They're also one thing they talked about is basically all speakers it will streams um, to all speakers in a surround sound system except for the subwoofer, but you can disable that. Right, the disabling is the new feature. The config yeah. Files, so. yeah, well, just to touch on the, the surround sound system, so like some people have 20 speakers plugged into their computer, 
But if you're listening to a stereo audio file with two tracks, by default, Pulse Audio is going to play that stereo file through all 20 speakers and split it 10 and 10 or however you have it set up. Um, but some people, if it's only got two tracks, they only want to use two speakers. So that's what disabling upmixing would do. Uh, okay. And what's so the next basically thing? the thing that really affected me is USB and Bluetooth devices are now preferred over internal sound cards by default. And basically, this is one of the main problems I kept having last week. And luckily, it seems to have not had this week because I actually remember the setting. But basically, my headset is using a USB Bluetooth or is using a USB connection through Bluetooth between the receiver and like my wireless headset on. And so, by default, it would actually prefer the it would set the sound output and recording to automatically go through the sound card in my motherboard. Okay. And so, I always remember having to change that. And um, this will be this is nice because by default you don't even have to ever change it and it'll just prefer it automatically. Yeah. This my mic, the AT twenty twenty, is also a USB uh, microphone as well. So I was okay. having issues even with that too. Yeah. And so that's definitely a good change. Um, they have the, some of the other changes they included. They mentioned that they have a like a headset role now for these Bluetooth. So I guess any Bluetooth headset has kind of a role set there that would hopefully I guess apply those settings to it. Yeah. And then there's some other stuff they mentioned. They I don't know what MTU configuration is in Bluetooth, but they improved that. Um, well, they they added support for GNU Herd. Yeah, I, I highlighted that. That was the only thing in this list I highlighted. You know, I don't know what improved Bluetooth MTU configuration is either. Um, and that's why I wouldn't have even said it out loud if I was running through the story. But, you know, the, the one yeah. thing in this list that I highlighted was support for GNU Herd. So if you're running the GNU kernel with your GNU tools, and like we attempted to some weeks back on the show, you can now use Pulse Audio, which is probably going to give like a 500% quality increase to the sound situation on Herd. If they did not have Pulse Audio yeah. before, and they do now, they're probably going to be pretty happy about that. Anyone who I mean, I'm actually surprised that wasn't included in its own like paragraph, but I guess this is OMG Ubuntu, so they're focusing more on Ubuntu and Linux. Yeah. Because that's that feels like on the list that should have been an afterthought that would be a more significant thing. You'd at think, least certainly for anyone but, heard. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately though, for Ubuntu, which just also affects me, yeah. it's not going to be released in seventeen dot ten. Right. And it's so, not easy to update other than by using the third-party package or to build it from source, Yeah. neither of which is all that good of an idea because it's such a core part of your OS that if you screw that up, your sound management, your sound server is going to not really work well. Right. But I assume it'll be out in 1804. Probably. But, but to be clear, yeah. So when you say 17.10, you know, not everyone knows this. So Ubuntu 17.10 is the version of Ubuntu that will be coming out next month. So it has not come out yet. Yeah. Pulse Audio 11.0 was released this week. 17.10 of Ubuntu comes out in a month. They have a month to include this, but they're not planning to and include they're it. Not. They're shipping 10.0, uh, which is now outdated for Pulse Audio. So you're going to have to wait like seven months to get the new Pulse Audio if you're an Ubuntu user. Now I'm on Arch. I'm going to open up a terminal right here and they, they give you this command Pulse Audio dash dash version at the bottom of this OMG Ubuntu article. I'm going to paste that into my terminal right here. I've already got 11.0. Uh, this came out this week. I've already got it. Richard has to wait seven months because I'm using yeah. Arch and he's using Ubuntu. That's why I use, that's one of the reasons I use Arch. 
Uh, just wanted to yeah, point out. Released over this. Yeah, uh, they point out the negative in the OMG Ubuntu article, but of course the article doesn't say if you want it now, switch to a rolling release distribution. No, they never say that. They just say, oh, and we can't get it for seven months. Sorry, nothing we can do about it. There is something you can do about it as an end user, but that's up to each user yeah. to decide for themselves if that's important to them. And I am actually awful tempted to go that route on my desktop. I could yeah. not go that route on my laptop because the installer on the live USB would not work. I think you can get it to work, but I, I think you can get yeah, it to work by playing with it. It, it, it. You might not be able to get it to work easily, the installer to boot up, but I, I'll bet there's a way. But yeah, that's yeah. that's another discussion. Um, so yeah, PulseAudio 11.0 is out. Uh, let's see, the next thing we're talking about is, this is another one you're talking about, Richard. What is Linux Mint doing with window progress? So this was part of their recent uh, monthly news for August. Okay, so I'm actually going to talk about two kind of things in the article they mentioned because there were two okay. kind of big things. So first, they improved their backup tool. Yeah, and um, it actually looked pretty cool if you use Lin if you use Mint because basically they simplified it a lot. They wanted to limit its scope so that it would do less, but what it did, it would really do well, right. which I feel like is kind of one of the core principles behind it. And so um, basically, you don't need to even use a password to run it anymore because it no longer runs its root, and it backs up your data only from your home folder and um basically your software selection as well so it allows like incredibly easy upgrading from one version of like mint to the other if you have to do a complete like reinstall if you have to do fun. a complete reinstall now like yeah. linux mint does have the ability to do in-place upgrades as well so probably don't have to do a complete reinstall yeah but even if you happen to you could probably use it to move to even another like os as long right. as you could get the back now I'm there. I'm assuming most of this the the good stuff with the backup tool though is going to be automation though because like I can just copy my home folder. So what's the automation capability yeah. of this? Well, it's nice that it automatically um, can tar do it into tar archive because that's somewhat painful to do. Yeah. <laughs> like if you want to get everything inside your home folder. Oh. Yeah, it's difficult and, to do uh, if you don't basically, know. Yeah, and basically the one of the main options though, or one of the main things is also you can exclude files and directories and they will remember it for future backups. Okay, that's and, nice. And that's pretty cool. So by default though, all hidden directories and files are excluded, but you can actually bring put them back in if you want to. If there's certain things like your maybe Steam settings you'd want to be constantly backed up. Mm -hmm. And um, they also changed it so the backup tool now lists only your programs in the software manager and not every package on your entire system which hmm. I guess definitely makes it more user-friendly because that's kind of the idea it seems like they're going with. Yeah. And... I'm assuming that you're going to get some stuff lost in there, though. If, uh, like, a package doesn't have a program associated with it, I don't know how it decides what is and is not a program or an application. Yeah. Well, I guess if it's inside the software manager, <laughs> their software manager. Yeah. So It's, it's designed to work with their stuff, I guess. Yeah. One of the other interesting things they're doing is they're making, they did some changes with window progress and mm -hmm. um, basically like they show an example of Windows 7 in here, which shows how the long Windows has had that since it's like 2009. Yeah. But the idea of window progress, in case you don't know what it is, is that when an application is performing a task that would have, say, a dialog box up, it'll actually display it down in the task bar and the progress inside bar. of its like view. Yeah. I think the progress so is more important than the dialog box. that percentage, yeah. Yeah, yeah because I, often you'll probably like, put something in front of the dialog box and you'll right. go to your web, web browser or just do some other task. Like if you're background. copying a big file or if you're running an update or something or rendering a video. Yeah. So they included this in libxapp 
as the C library that they made. Yeah. And um, it provides dynamic bindings to basically a ton of languages. But they show an example of Python with it. They also show an example of a screenshot of like this is my window, seeing how that would look in action. Yeah. Just to illustrate the so point more. So if you have a program, let's say that it's completing a long task like rendering a video and it's 50% done, 50% of the little box in the the taskbar will be filled up with red, it looks like, in this example. Yeah, and that's just handy, especially for a long task. Obviously, a file copy often is pretty quick unless you're copying, like, 20 gigabytes, but for, yeah. like, a, a well, video render, that's that would what be helpful. Right, yeah. I copy <laughs> the I was, files a lot. Yeah, I was Probably unarchiving 15 gigabytes when I was moving my... Yeah. <laughs> when I moved to um, the newest version for my old, like, version of Linux. And basically, this is coming in Linux Mint 18.3, and um, it is implemented in Cinnamon, but they did not support... Um, they're considering adding support for it in Mate, Kaja, and Synaptic. Right, which Kaja and Synaptic had. are applications that come with Mate, made for Mate. Yeah. Um, now and basically, they did include it in all... Pretty much almost all their major ones, like for file operations with Nemo, the backup tool, the well, software Well, yeah, when you say all their manager. major ones. So, yeah, their file manager. Yeah, they, it's the stuff that their comes with Linux Mint. Yeah. 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 Which we were talking about this before the show. Their distribution. Right. We were, we were talking about this before the show. One of the sentences that I don't really like in this blog post is, quote, we decided to make this possible in Linux by implementing it in LibXApp. Talking about the, the window progress feature. We decided to make this possible in Linux for the first time ever. Except it's already in other stuff. Yeah. yeah. This is already a feature in KDE Plasma. When I'm rendering a video in Kden Live, I get feedback in the, the taskbar on the Caden Live window that shows how far it is done rendering. When I am copying large files, which I do often with video, I get feedback in the Dolphin item in the taskbar showing how how far it's gone, just like Windows 7 has. Um, so yeah, they're not really, they're not the first people to do this on Linux, and they're saying that they are, but, um, you know, they It I also guess, shows it in the status and notifications thing in KDE as well. Right. Under the progress, if you have yeah. like four things going, which yeah. a couple times when I was like zipping, unzipping a bunch of files at once, right. I had like four or five things going and could track them all yeah. inside there. But it does and literally it, have it in the, the window as well, or there are at least options for yeah. it because I have that on my system. So um, that's when right. they put in Linux, it's a little right. different than when they say in Cinnamon. And Richard had a little bit of confusion about the libx app thing because when you say, oh, it's libx app, you know, we use X on Linux. Every desktop environment runs on the X window server, yeah. the X display server. So that must be for all desktops, right? No, libx app is only for Linux Mint. Now they, they made libx app. You can go back and read about when they started libx app. They said, oh, now everybody can use Linux Mint's great built in tools software everybody can use nemo for their file manager everyone can use whatever our custom they made like a custom text editor that's basically just a geetic clone they like basically cloned a bunch of of mate software which would be old gnome software they cloned it called it x and then said now it's generic and standard um but nobody really uses it except for cinnamon so if you look at the list of things that this window progress works in basically it's just going to be cinnamon tools linux mint tools that you're going to be using with cinnamon still nice that they've done it for sure, if you're a Linux Mint mm -hmm. user, you're going to love this. If you're not a Linux Mint user... And if you're user, a developer, you probably might want to just add support to it to your application. Well, that's, so that's the thing, though. Running it on Cinnamon. That's the thing. I don't think a lot of developers are going to go out of their way to add. Because Linux Mint, even though it's still... I think Linux Mint is a very good and popular distro. To be clear, I actually really like Linux Mint more than a lot of people do. But there's a lot of contempt yeah. for Linux Mint out in the Linux community. 
uh, for various reasons. And then Linux Mint is also losing a lot of market. First of all, just to Ubuntu. Also, they've lost a lot of market to elementary OS um, and Solus. Um, yeah, just some other user-friendly, beginner-friendly things that have come out, distros that have come out since Linux Mint. Um, it's not really the go-to anymore. So I don't know how many developers are actually going to go out of their way to add in the code for this when it's only going to work in Linux Mint, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, the reason this was kind of significant to me is because the lab computers that we have at yeah. my college are all running Linux Mint. So are they really? I don't personally run Linux That's Mint. That's weird. Yeah. That's really weird. Yeah. Wow. Huh. What version are they running? Um, 18.2. Okay. And it's the cinnamon the version? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's very interesting. I would not have thought that a college would be using Linux Mint at all, but there you go. It just goes to show you, anyone who says that Linux Mint is not popular, the school Richard goes to is using it, so at least some people know about it. All right, so there's that. Yeah, and that. basically it's because it's kind of user-friendly, I guess, at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but as you were saying, there's others that are competing with that, so I'm not sure your exact reasoning on choosing it over others. I wasn't really obviously involved in that decision, but... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the next story, you were also going to talk about this, though, uh, Manjaro phasing out 32-bit support. Um, yes, let me open that article. I don't right. think I actually have it up. Oh, I do, okay. So basically, they... They talk about it in the in the beginning. They say due to the decreasing popularity of it among developers in the community, we've decided to phase out support for i686 or 32-bit architecture. Yeah. And um, they're saying that basically then starting in version 17.03, that will be the last one that allows you to install 32-bit Manjaro Linux. And basically the main way they're doing it is they're saying that packages no longer need to support um i686 at all to be can like to stay in their package like in the stay in the repositories i guess yeah but um so that's effectively making it unsupported but as you were pointing out there's the real reasoning is probably because arch that they're based off of isn't supporting it anymore so it would be yeah. very hard for them to force people to continue supporting 32-bit it's really interesting first of all i already knew from reading about this previously that arch was going to be discontinuing their 32-bit support in November, it was gonna that like that's it. It's turned off in November, and it's really convenient that Manjaro says September and October will be our deprecation period, starting from November, which happens to be when Arch is dropping 32-bit support. That is when we will be dropping 32-bit support as well. Here's what's really interesting, though, Richard. Um, so we're gonna go. I've got actually the Arch Linux. This was a announcement put out on January 25th of this year on the Arch Linux website. Now, Richard, read me the first sentence of the Manjaro announcement. Due to decreasing popularity among I, 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 read it, I read it word for uh, word. I, six developers yeah. in the community. We, ha we have decided to phase out support for this architecture. Right. Here's the first sentence of Arch Linux. Due to the decreasing popularity of I6A6 among the developers and the community, we have decided to phase out the support of this architecture. All right. And yeah. go ahead and read the next sentence, Richard, in the Manjaro one. This decision means that the version 17.03 ISO will be the last one that allows 32-bit installation of Jaro Linux. The decision means that February ISO will be the last that allows to install 32-bit Arch Linux. What's the next sentence? September and October will be a deprecation period during which i686 will still be receiving upgraded packages. The next nine months are deprecation period during which i686 will still be receiving upgraded packages. And then the next sentence? Starting from November 2017, packaging will no longer require that from maintainers effectively making high 686 unsupported. 
Starting from November 2017, packaging and repository tools will no longer require that for maintainers, effectively making i686 unsupported. And that's, uh, let's see, that's the end of this one. It says, kind regards from the Manjaro project leader. They copied <laughs> and pasted that. It was a copy paste. They copied Because there's a period on unsupported and then kind regards with no capital K. They, yeah, <laughs> no the, the part they copied from Arch Linux has good grammar and then the part that they typed has bad grammar. But yeah, they copied and pasted the release and the, the announcement that Arch put out in January. They're just now. They, no shame. Manjaro was like, oh, Arch is discontinuing 32-bit? No problem. We're not Arch. Six months later, oh, hey, by the way, completely unrelated to what they said six months ago, but we're going to be discontinuing this at the same time as they are. We're just giving you less notice about it. It's, you know, completely unrelated, almost entirely. Word it for would word. have been more genuine, more true to their users. I feel like if Manjaro had made the announcement back when Arch made the announcement, like why I actually considered switching from Arch to Manjaro on one of my 32 bit computers because I was like, oh, Manjaro hasn't said they're going to discontinue 32 bits, so maybe they're going to keep it going. It's like if you already knew that Arch was doing this and you knew you would follow suit, why would not... This Arch announced this on January 25th. Say, yeah, January 26th, next day, I would have expected Manjaro to come out and say, hey, Arch announced this. Obviously, we're based on Arch, so just so our users know, you've got nine months to get off of 32-bit. But instead, Manjaro's just pretending for for seven months that they're not going to discontinue 32-bit and now their users only have two months to get off of this whereas arch gave their users nine months so it, it, yeah it's just ridiculous you know manjaro um they hide that they're based on arch whereas antergos is very open about the fact that they're based on arch um but yeah arch does say that there's uh the multi-lib repository will not be affected so like if you're using 32-bit um drivers and things then those should still be okay on arch but yeah that's happening anything else you wanted to say about that richard because you were taking the lead on that story um not a whole lot i mean i don't actually have any 32-bit computers that i've like installed anything on in the last like five or six years so i don't know how many people is affected you said you did have a 32-bit computer i've got well i've so got I'm a few 32-bit computers um a couple of them are old dell dimensions that i have used in the past running linux one of them used to be the nerd on the street web server uh, a long time ago, but that's long, you know, we don't use that for a web <laughs> server anymore. I've used them for Minecraft servers. We don't do that anymore. Uh, one that I actually do still use uh, is a MacBook. It's one of those old, it's a black MacBook, and you know it's old because they haven't made black MacBooks for a while now. It's actually got a 32-bit yeah, processor in it. Yeah, a black MacBook. <laughs> yeah, they, they made them a while ago. It was before Unibody and everything, but um, but yeah, they I've got one of those that I got fairly recently, and even though my main computer is a laptop, it's a System76, you know, it's the workstation, so I don't just take it everywhere because I don't want it getting beat up, for one, because it's, you know, several thousand dollars, and two, it's pretty heavy, it doesn't have great battery life. So my laptop, I do take it from place to place, but I'm not using it on the go. Uh, whereas sometimes, if I know I'm going to be in a car with somebody else that I'm driving with for a while, or if I'm like, oh, I want to throw a, a laptop in my backpack so I can write some some scripts when I'm at school, you know, between classes. I'll just throw this MacBook in my bag. Um, and I've got Fedora 32-bit on it right now because it was the um, one of the only distros that still has 32-bit support left. Um, I'm not even sure. I think Ubuntu My I don't know if Ubuntu has 32-bit or not still. Uh, Debian definitely still does. But yeah, um, I Pretty still. Pretty sure Ubuntu does. I but wanted I'll have to double check on that. I wanted to put Arch on that um, 
that that MacBook, but I knew that they were going to be phasing out 32-bit support, so I'm like, well, guess I shouldn't do that. Um, another one that I use 32-bit distros on sometimes is my 2006 Mac Pro. Now, it's actually got 64-bit processors, but the bootloader is 32-bit. So the easiest thing to do with that is to just install a 32-bit operating system. Installing a 64-bit with a 32-bit EFI bootloader is a pain in the butt, and, but it's what I'm going to have to do in the future if I ever want to install one of these 64-bit-only operating systems. So that's where I use 32-bit. Okay. All right. and so that our, was just interesting, yeah. I yeah. haven't used it in a while, but that was cool to realize that there are clearly still use cases and there's still people using it. Yeah, there are some. All right, and our very last story this week is remote desktop capabilities making a comeback in GNOME on Wayland. So we've talked about how Wayland, because of security, it breaks a lot of the screen casting and screen sharing features in uh, that we had in X that we were used to. You know, you can share your entire screen. Mm -hmm. You can remote desktop in. But that kind of thing, Wayland doesn't just let any application see the entire screen because it is a security risk. You know, you get one program on your yeah. computer that, that, you know, is doing things that you don't know that it's doing. And this is why open source is important because you can have a proprietary program. You know, what if Google Chrome started taking a screenshot every hour? And I actually recall something like this happening at some point in the past with Chromium and then people found it in the source code and called them out on it and they removed it. Uh, but it was actually taking screenshots and not sending them anywhere, but just storing them. Um, like every couple hours, it would take a screenshot and just save it, not do anything with it. And th this just that was creepy that they were doing that. And that can obviously be used for nefarious purposes. So yeah. Wayland doesn't I mean, just... Another program that just knows about it could look those up and maybe right. there could be a password or a username or something on that. Or on it could be sending point. them to, to third parties and now people know what you're doing on your computer. Um, so Wayland doesn't just let any application access your screen, but sometimes you do want to share your screen or you want to remote desktop in. So uh, Gnome used to have the uh, remote desktop server called Vino. However, it was left behind when GNOME transitioned their desktop from the X compositor to Wayland. And so GNOME has been left without a working VNC or even a remote desktop protocol server for almost a full year. However, a developer called Jonas Adal from Red Hat, they're a Red Hat employee, and they have been busy adding the new Dbus APIs to libmutter, uh, which is a, a Mutter is a GNOME window manager for and Wayland compositor. So libmutter is GNOME's implementation of Wayland. So the two new APIs that Jonas Adel has added are Remote Desktop and Screencast, and you can use those to create full screen streams or streams for individual windows. Now only the former has been implemented so far, full screen streams, which that kind of seems like, a, like a, of course, if you have the option to get the entire screen or only a section of it, most people are just gonna, for the ease of it, say, oh, get the entire screen. Uh, even though that's bad for security. I feel yeah. like we're we're building in these security things and then we're just going to have programs just bypass it immediately. And it's <laughs> going to be not, like there's not going to be a point to any of Wayland's security because we're just going to use user land applications to get around every bit of security that Wayland built in. Um, but I can see like OBS using individual windows in the future because OBS has an option to only track one window. So it'd be cool if uh, once OBS gets ported to Wayland if, if they can use this. To do that now, of course, it would only be on GNOME right now because KDE is not using Mutter, but that's another issue. These, huh? One of the user land programs that utilize these APIs have to ask permission or something. Um, I would hope, right? I don't know. I don't think they mention it here, but the new APIs to yes. finally allow services such as RDP and VNC servers. I mean, this is talking about remote desktop. 
to be fair, this isn't talking about yeah. um, screen, like screencast sounds like something that might be for screen sharing, but remote desktop, obviously there is yeah. authentication um, already. So yeah, inherently not, not in anyone can just desktop. remote desktop in without you giving them permission. Right. If you're setting up an RDP or a VNC server, you're going to want to set up some authentication in that server. But yeah, he created a program called GNOME Remote Desktop, which is a new user level systemd service daemon built on top of the new remote desktop API plus VNC support from libvnc server. Uh, and that new service can be used to connect up a remote VNC client to your local screens session. Um, so that GNOME Remote Desktop program is a drop-in replacement for the old Vino server. So basically, when GNOME ported to Wayland, they lost this ability and they have now gained it back, is what the story is saying. They are back to where they mm -hmm. were before. So yeah. It does just leave me wondering about the org.gnome.mutter.screencast API, though, and right. if that's secure. Yeah. Because uh, that's that's a system I'd like, is then it just kind of like, you know how Windows UAC will ask you to give something permission. It would ask you to give permission to view the desktop. The, that way you know, okay, all right. Skype is sharing my screen now or whatever. No, but, wh hang on, though. In, in Windows, when you open up Skype and try and share your screen, do you actually get a UAC prompt? No. No, but the whole Skype application is UAC prompt. You have to. Do you have to run it as administrator or something? That's what UAC oh, no, is for, right? Yeah, I'm not saying that about. I'm not saying Windows does that, but I'm saying that kind of idea of a prompt. No, but yeah, to make sure you know. But to be clear, like Windows does not have that. Does not have that level feature, of security. Yeah. So that's yeah. we're not behind in that sense. It's just something to think about. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it does or not, but see how it's implemented in the future. But yeah, that's our last story for this week. Man, that was a long episode, Richard. We've been going for an hour and a half. How about that? Um, so yeah, if you enjoyed the show, head on over to nerdonthestreet.com for more videos. And remember, uh, go to nerdclub.nots.co if you want to help us make more of these. It is $3 per month to join the Nerd on the Street Nerd Club. And then you can access the full uncut stream recordings from streams like this one. Uh, you can chat with us on our members-only forums, although we do have public forums over at nerdonthestreet.com as well. Um, and by the way, we are also trying to save up for a capture card for our upcoming Extra Life stream this year, and joining the Nerd Club would really help us afford that capture card. So nerdclub.nots.co, um, or just go to nerdofthestreet.com, click on the Nerd Club link in the top bar. But yeah, for now, that's all of the Linux news this week, and I hope that is uh, enough information for everyone. Richard, if people really liked your take on things they want to see more of you throughout the week, where can they go? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Glorif22, G-L-O-R-I-F-22, or you can check out my website, richardsprojects.net. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at JacobGKAU, or of course, just at nerdonthestreet.com. But yeah, for now, that's your Linux news. Keep using Linux, everyone, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.